what a better way to reconcile than we say, not only do we value these lands and we believe in the power of them, we believe in the power of these lands so much that we believe that they could be an instrumental part in real reconciliation, which our country is so desperate for. Like they could hold such a special place, not just the history of violence and genocide and death, but could hold this place in the history of reconciliation. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Pantsuit Politics. I am here with my <laughs> beloved husband, Nicholas Holland. Welcome to Pantsuit Politics. Well, thank you for having me on Pantsuit Politics. It's a, a joy and honor. It's beautiful studio we're in today. Yeah, we're in the annex studio at the Holland Household, a.k.a. my closet on the floor. In beautiful uptown Paducah, Kentucky. <laughs> um. Before we get into the show, I have a couple ideas. I just want to workshop with you real quick. Remember, I am a professional. I thought what we could do is talk about like really specific things you love about me. Thoughts? Yeah, it's great. It's a great topic. Okay. We'll or that. I thought we could work through like our like inside meme jokes, just like run through them where nobody really knows what we're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds good. We should just, well, we should just sprinkle those throughout. So okay, people so people con- are really confused. Constantly confused. Okay, good, 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 good. I'm glad you saying. agree. I'm glad you agree with that. So that's our agenda today. Everybody, we're going to work through why I'm amazing and our favorite memes. Just in jokes. In you know, jokes. From nearly 20 years of marriage. <laughs> it ought to be real thrill for you guys. It's going to be so good. Okay, before we get started, this is important because Nicholas is our uh, Patreon officer. He's the one who, you really pushed us to do Patreon to begin with, right? I mean, you pushed me to do the podcast and Patreon. You're just the, you're the engine behind everything. I don't know about that, but I, I'm the idea man. You're the like idea to, man. I like to have lots of ideas that I present to you and that you mostly shoot down. I have a few <laughs> occasionally really good ones. Like, maybe we should start a podcast. Yeah. And I don't say we. Maybe you should start a podcast. <laughs> and then you seem to be working really hard at this. Maybe people would be willing to pay you a little money for a That's little so extra true. content. It changed our life. I can't tell you enough how much the support on Patreon means to all of us. You know, and the big change recently was we moved my Instagram news brief to Patreon. And honestly, I think the biggest exciting change for me with Patreon, especially recently, is, you know, I always thought, well, it'll be this place and we can give people more. But it has turned into the best community. Like, it gives us so much. It is really where we have the best conversations. It's where like I watch you guys have the most amazing conversations. I feel like I learn something in the comment thread of the news brief every day. Someone is like, well, here's my experience in this part of the country. And let me add this layer of interesting sort of evidence to that side of the story. It's just, it's the best. It's the best. It's the best place on the internet. That's my, that's my case for joining Patreon. So today we're going to tackle a couple headlines and then we're going to talk about one of your favorite topics. National the national parks. parks. Yeah. And then we're going to talk about what's on our mind outside politics. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Okay, moving on to the news. It's, you know, it's really really difficult. The situation in Minnesota has gotten more intense and more heartbreaking. It was already so difficult with the trial of Derek Chauvin, especially, you know, right now they're starting with a defense, which is just, it's difficult to listen to. It's difficult to listen. Everybody deserves their defense, but it's not exactly easy to listen to them try to argue that that's not why George Floyd died that the actions of Derek Chauvin were not the reason that he died. Like, that's just not easy to hear. And then on top of all of that, we have the death of 20-year-old Dante Wright. He was shot and killed by Kim Potter, and now ex-Brooklyn Center police officer, who, as of today, as we're recording on Thursday, has been charged with secondary manslaughter. You and I got in a pretty intense conversation about this last night. We did. We get in a lot of intense conversations about this. About the news. Yeah. Well, it's just very hard to talk about this at all because it just seems so commonplace and mm-hmm. so unnecessary. And the conversations devolve into sort of the details of each case, Yeah, which is so, I guess it's important in one respect, but at the same time, it completely ignores that this was an entirely unnecessary death. Yeah. That he was stopped for something that is silly, that people are not typically stopped for that he was mm-hmm. it at least appears from a lot of the details that it he was he was profiled more yeah. or less and that the stop itself he had a warrant for his arrest out there's no question about that 
But there's a real question from in my eyes as to whether any of this was necessary mm-hmm. and the way that it went down, obviously tragic in 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 his death. Um, but you know, a lot of this conversation now has turned to, well, was it an accident? Did she mm-hmm. mean to shoot him? You know, it was it was it a taser mix up? And I think that's a conversation that's worth having about whether or not t- tasers and and firearms should be so similar in their design. But it's not the one I want to have right now. Yeah. About this. Well, and that that's kind of what you and I got into last night because, you know, I think this whole taser mix up thing, I mean, it's a conversation people have claimed it's happened before. But even if you believe every person who says I mixed up the taser and the gun, it's still not a huge number of cases. To me, whether or not you believe she was, you know, meant to pull her gun or meant to pull the taser, you know, our argument was whether or not it was accidental. And to me, it's like it's 12 seconds of time. That's an incredibly short period, which makes it all the more heartbreaking that, you know, you can pack so many individual actions into 12 seconds. But I think your point is the is the right one, which is it doesn't matter. Like, they, it's not about what happened after he got pulled over. It's like, why was he pulled over to begin with? And why do we have, you know, you and I were talking last night that both of us have been driving around for literal years with broken taillights and have never gotten pulled over ever for either of our broken taillights. Yes, which I think both the mysteries of, of those taillights is that our children broke our taillights, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, that's um. so true. <laughs> and so, but I mean, this is the thing. It's like when I was in law school and I, it was in law school till I learned, like, I thought everybody just got pulled over for speeding. And, you know, all the people in my class were like, no, white girl, that's not why people get pulled over for, by the police officer. They get pulled over for all manner of reasons. And really, there's one reason, because a lot of times they're being profiled. And I just think, like, I think the argument is, even if you give police officers every benefit of the doubt, which I don't, you know, whatever, I think, like, why is it escalating? Why is a traffic stop escalating? Why are we pulling people over for what in the training thought I need to escalate to violence, even if he was trying to get back into his car? It's not like they were pursuing some sort of mass shooter or somebody who had like just committed a crime. Even with the warrant, it's not like it was for some recent violent action. You know, that's to me, it's like the whole process, the whole the flow of actions that come from. You can even argue they come from training. That's problematic. Like something is broken. And I'm not really, it is hard not to believe the people who say it can't be reformed. Like we have to start over. Yeah, well, definitely. And there is some reform effort going on uh, or at least proposed in Minnesota today. I think there's a bill being being considered or, or one of the, there's a legislator there who's insisting that they stop their budget negotiations to pass public safety laws, including one that would prohibit traffic stops for these minor offenses like mm-hmm. things hanging in your windows or a broken taillight or even you know, expired tags, that these are not stops that should be happening because right. what they lead to. And I know that you not, hate Malcolm Gladwell, which I don't, don't like Malcolm Gladwell. You don't like Malcolm. This is true. a source of discord in our marriage. But he did such a good, I don't know, I think it might be in the book that you just have a fury about, but about like the, the, where the traffic stop started, like where the, like we, we just traffic stop a lot for these small offenses. It was in neighborhoods that were struggling with crime. And but it, it's like it's supposed to be in a very specific situation like and it's expanded to way beyond how the like original studies and the original proponents of this approach were looking at. And it's that it's just grown way out of control. It's not serving 
anybody. It very, it just, it often escalates situations that don't need to be escalated instead of sweeping up criminals or sweeping up people on the run or whatever they right. originally I, intended. I think what you're referring to is like some of the broken windows policing. That, no, it that wasn't broken wasn't windows. Like it was that. something different, but it's like yeah, related it's to, that. to that. Yeah, definitely. Right, which is this, which, you know, obviously was kind of a model uh, for a period in the 90s. And then obviously it's turned into some very problematic things, Man, stop I'm, and frisk. And- you know, I'm reading Far From the Tree and I'm reading the part on criminality right now and juvenile delinquency. And it's like they're talking about all the like the ballooning of juvenile incarceration during the 90s. And it's just hard to beat, like especially as a person who lived through it, just to not look back and think the 90s was just a really cruel time. I don't know what was going on, but it, we got so many things wrong in the 90s. Yeah, I'd say I, mean, <laughs> I think we get many things wrong in every every decade. decade. It's just oh, no. that sometimes it takes a while for things to show that to for the negative uh, side effects to to rear their ugly heads. And I do think there was some. There's no doubt that some of the national policy as well as regional local policies with policing that sounded great on paper mm-hmm. and and maybe in the interim period had a, a downward effect on violent crime. Ultimately, have led to some pretty negative outcomes in the long term. Well, speaking of negative outcomes in the long term, the other thing we're going to talk about is that the Biden administration's call for the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. This is also a good, we decided, intro into a conversation about your politics and how often we fight, because this was one of our first big fights, because after September 11th, when we were in college, I was pretty opposed to troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we got in some big fights about that. We had some disagreements. I, so recall. This is I a- don't recall. You you have a better memory of us just disagreeing about Afghanistan. I, I mean, I think the history of the Afghanistan war is one that was largely wildly supported by the public because of the immediate aftermath of 9-11. The Iraq war was the one I think I recall as having yes. more yes, heated that's discussions fair. ever because I guess I wanted to believe that Colin Powell wouldn't lie to the UN about the reasons for going to war, and you were much more circumspect about the reasons and rationale for the war. Well, because remember, I was in senior seminar with Dr. Fryman from Transy, and we were literally like our whole, the whole like focus of the class was U.S. involvement abroad, like the Vietnam War, the Korean War, like all these different, it was, it was so, it was so brutal to be learning the history of how this fails every single time and how complicated it is and how like we feel this very emotional rush to war and how it like feeds certain things and it never works out the way we thought it was and like to just to feel all that and see all that and watch what was happening in the national landscape like it just you know I would love for this to be an opportunity for us to go on record with how right I was at the time but it really was about the class I was in and like learning being like learning that history and seeing it play out in front of you was just so frustrating but yeah we got into some pretty hardcore fights as i remember well and i i guess i should we should back up i'm I'm, my politics are not too different from sarah's i think but in this case i think particularly with the iraq war i think there was just some disagreement about the necessity of it and ultimately sarah was more than right i think Mm -hmm. it's what's shown um in both of these wars is that um, attempting to nation build attempting to democratize or however you want to put it countries in which we have very little understanding of the politics and and which are not particularly welcoming to our our brand of of quote unquote democratization mm-hmm. uh, which is usually perceived as as um, invasion so to speak doesn't really work and and I think that's what 
Joe Biden sort of admitted yesterday, ultimately. Yeah. And, and he's been a critic. Biden's been a critic of, of the Afghanistan presence for a long time. Not this, from the beginning when he was on the foreign relations. Sure. But I mean, since when he was vice president, I think there's some there, he, he pushed for, for troop drawdowns. And I think he's seen, as he said yesterday, four presidents have presided over the Afghanistan mm -hmm. war and he's not going to send it to a fifth. And, and his point was basically this just hadn't worked. You know, mm -hmm. we, we, we keep thinking that we can go in and we can. We can clear the areas of the Taliban. We can grow and then we can hold and, and build. And the hold and build part has been almost Yeah, impossible. people don't really stay still. <laughs> well, and I, I, I think, was like, it's kind of an interesting way to think like, well, clear it out and no one will come in again. Well, why? Because people are, we're just going to tell people to like. Sure. And I think that, I think that there is some fear and some probably some reality in that um, the areas that we have helped to, you know, clear or build or whatever it is, um, well, probably many of them will probably end up back in the hands of the Taliban. And there's some well, some some negative, some downside to that. Right. And let's not assume that this is all just on some road to peace. And we've all, as you, as like the American government, really reevaluated our complete approach to the world. Because part of this is they want to focus more on China and Russia. Right. Like, it's not that we've decided we're going to deal with our enemies completely differently, although I don't expect any sort of occupation or violent action towards China or Russia. It's more like, well, we got to focus our energies on a different enemy right now. And I think, like, this is one of the few times we had a disagreement where I felt more liberal than you. I think the people might be surprised to hear that often it is the other way around and that you are consistently uh, liberal. And can I fairly call it less than nuanced, less than grace-filled? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you could call it that. You could call it that. So I guess I should just talk about my background because it probably it's very helpful, I think, in understanding of the four Pantsuit Politics partners, I guess, in, in meaning relationships being Beth and Chad and Sarah and I, I'm the only one who really grew up in an urban setting. I yes, would say. that's true. Um, I grew up outside of Atlanta in a town called Decatur, Georgia. It's at a bit of an idyllic uh, little town still, although it's, it's changed quite a bit since I've lived there and gentrified quite a bit since I've lived there, but went uh, you know to elementary school, middle and high school, lived there basically my entire young life. And it's a very um, liberal town and it, that environment certainly shaped me. Um, you know, I was born at the tail end of the Carter administration and Jimmy Carter, the only president Bliss. president from Georgia still has a, you know, a bit of a following there. And my parents were both fairly liberal as best I could tell, although they weren't. I knew that they voted Democratic for the most part. My mother has has over the years voted occasionally for the, a Republican presidential <laughs> candidate or two. Um, I sort of stopped asking after <laughs> she voted for George W. Bush. And but as certainly as a as a child, I understood that we were we were Democrats. And I think really we were Democrats or I was a Democrat in the sense that I was I was sort of for Democratic politicians. And I agreed with what Democratic politicians wanted to do because they were Democratic politicians. Mm -hmm. And I think as I've aged, I've realized that that's not as we discussed with, you know, certain policing and certainly with the welfare reform and some other things that were done in the Clinton administration. Yeah, the cruelty of the 90s. The, the cruelty of the 90s showed me that perhaps just Demo being in favor of Democratic politicians isn't really my politics. So I do think as I've gotten older, despite what my what people used to tell me was I would get more conservative as I got older. I think I've gotten more liberal as I've gotten older. And I think that's driven and this is going to sound kind of contradictory, but it's driven largely by the fact that I felt like the conservative party, Republican Party maybe, or just conservatives, 
just there was so much hypocrisy in the way that they kind of played the game. And so, interestingly enough, you know, when I was, we lived in D.C. for five years. Well, we so, lived yeah. in D.C. for five years. But, you know, when I was a kid in the 90s, Newt Gingrich was the Republican, you know, standard bearer in, in a lot of ways. Well, he was a Georgia politician. So I was kind of right there in that, you know, the thick of the people who supported Newt Gingrich. And and then, as you know, even then, I think I would say I was I felt like the two parties were mostly toward the center of the political spectrum. And that we could disagree with nuance. Everybody was on the same page. Everyone was acting in good faith. Well, Newt Gingrich, I think, started the road down to this sort of bad faith, what I would call bad faith politics. And I think even interesting, more interestingly, I went to college in Kentucky and now live in Kentucky where Mitch McConnell, the current standard bearer for the Republican Party, who in my view- Sort of. Well, fair enough. The current standard bearer for some wing of the Republican Party- (laughs) Um, is, of course, the senator, and um, I'm forced to see his name on the ballot every six years. And I think his particular brand of politics has really turned me much more negatively toward the Republican Party and maybe even pushed me more liberally just in a response kind of stance um, to that. Well, because I think what what a lot of our disagreements are about is you project often, I think, that bad faith on, like, everyone who votes Republican. And I'm always the one being like, I don't think that's fair. Like, I see the bad faith. I recognize the bad faith. I'm as furious as you are by the bad faith of people like Mitch McConnell and Newt Gingrich. And also, we cannot project that on everybody who votes Republican. And that's fair in its own right, <laughs> I guess. I mean, I, I, we have lots of friends who I'm sure vote Republican. I don't judge. I don't necessarily judge people or put people in a box. I'm not here to disown people because they vote Republican. But I find it very hard as a person who considers myself a thinking person to see how you can continue to support politicians who just have such bad faith policies. And I'll, I'll point to one in particular, which is... But course, they don't think they're subverting the politicians. They're in a community. So they're just continuing to live in that community of people. Like they see the people around them. They're not thinking about Mitch McConnell necessarily. I, fair enough. And I think that's probably fair. But at the same time, when you have somebody who... Um, when you have a party and a politician in particular who takes this very allegedly principled stand against, um, you know, uh, even considering to confirming a Supreme Court nominee in the last year of a president's uh, term and then turns around and um, mm-hmm. and ignores that allegedly principled stand and even, in fact, makes light of it and jokes about it in a public forum in Paducah. In fact, yeah, yeah that happened in Paducah. Um, That's so true. It's just it's so. It's just, it's infuriating because I think there was not a lot of grace filled conversation in the Holland household between either of us at that point in time. Well, and I also just think it, it, it tears at the, the, this is going to sound so idealistic, but it sort of tears at democracy. It tears at people's trust that there's any real good faith among each other. And I think that's what you're seeing now being, becoming the policy of the Biden administration, which is you guys have never, not since, particularly not since Obama, have never really played fair. Yeah. But you always wanted us to to play fair and you didn't want to. Under and the so, promise that you would that you would agree, but you were never ever right. going Under, to agree. And that's the same thing with this infrastructure conversation, which yeah. is and I think that it's it may be bad for this infrastructure bill ultimately, because I think that there's probably some some legitimate criticisms of some of the things that the Biden administration wants to do. And there may be some room for real compromise if there was a sense that, that compromise was actually going to get you a vote. Right. And then even more infuriating, right, is these guys don't even vote for bills, right? They yeah. didn't vote for this most recent stimulus, whatever you want to call it, economic impact bill. Relief. 
um, relief. And but now they're they're doing tours of their states, calling it Christmas in July. Our congressman here in Paducah, Jamie Comer, is calling it Christmas in July and telling and saying, "Well, all this money coming to." You know, McCracken County, which is the county we live in, and the, and the surrounding counties. This is this is going to be great for you communities. Well, he didn't vote. He for didn't it, vote for but it. But now he's oh, that's like He can take some credit for it. Well, so. and I, you know, as you're as you're talking, I was thinking like, and that's what that's why there was polarization. I hate to use that word. I don't really, but like the tearing at that fabric because I think I was making that argument, and I think a lot of people were making that argument. Well, that's not me. That's Mitch McConnell. But then Donald Trump pushed it so far, I think, that people could no longer reserve for some goodwill for Republican voters in the face of Republican leadership. You know what I mean? Like, I think there just there became this break where it was like, I cannot separate you. Donald Trump made it really, really difficult to separate people from their vote. Right. And you couldn't say like, well, yeah. You're not paying attention to the inside baseball of what Mitch McConnell's doing, and you don't realize like what a hypocrite he is. And so I can reserve some goodwill for you when you can see what Donald Trump's saying all over Twitter every day. And how am I supposed to reserve any goodwill for you when you can see with your own eyes how he behaves and what he does and the policies that he supports? And I think that's where it became really, really hard, if possible, to... to... Yeah, I mean, I think I crossed the bridge before Donald Trump. I mean, I, I was not obviously thrilled with Donald Trump's presidency in any respect. But I think I had kind of crossed the bridge before the 2016 election mm, of yeah. these guys. Are, and I hate to say it, like, they don't play fair because politics isn't supposed to be fair. But they don't, they pretend to want to play by a set of ground rules that they just routinely ignore. And they I just, mean, but like the voters. I mean, separating the leadership yeah, from well, the voters. I guess. I mean, I, but I have a hard time. You're not wrong. I have a very hard time You do. You don't, you don't like to do that. Because I guess maybe just because I feel like that people ought to be paying attention yeah. <laughs> and I get that people don't have time. and I get that it's complicated and I get, I get all that on a cerebral level, but it, at an emotional level, it just feels like. Anger what? is a secondary emotion though, right. Nicholas. What's behind right. the anger? Um, sadness. I'd say probably <laughs> right. just yeah. like, you know, like a feeling of like, feel like we could be a better country if we could yeah. be, if we could all act out of some set of good faith principles that we're not always, you know, this whole thing that we're taught as kids, like, Oh, compromise is the, is the, it's the root of our democracy. Well, is it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that's our book in the extra credit book club, Kill Switch. Adam Jenelson is arguing like, no, it's not, and it's like we overemphasize right. compromise and I think in America. That it's we been put it up to on the a detriment of policies that I would typically support. Well, and I think that's the brilliance of the Biden administration saying, oh, we're compromising. We're listening to voters. We're not listening to you guys anymore. That's the difference. Right. We're not listening to congressional leadership and saying and assuming that they. Represent everybody because the truth is because of gerrymandering and a lot of different reasons, they don't really represent everybody. They represent some extreme factions mm -hmm. that get louder voices. Like, I don't really think, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I hate to even mention her name. Like, it's not like she represents the majority of Republican voters. Even Republican voters, I don't think that she does. Maybe I'm being Yeah, I think that's naive. a whole other story, though. I mean, I think... She's from Georgia, too. Good job, Georgia. Is, she is. Well, John Lewis is also from Georgia. That's so true, we, that's true, we, that's we, true, that's true. Some things. That's true. And you have two Democratic senators. We do, which is just a, a, a real shock to the system. You were shocked. You were definitely shocked. I was shocked. 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 The Cape County is where I grew up, and so... And I kind of know the politics there a lot better than most of the rest of Georgia. Or maybe I'm immersed... Was immersed in it at some point. Yeah, it's it's it's... In the main, I would say... I understand that not every Republican voter supports every Republican policy, but 
in my moments. I mean, obviously, you live in Paducah, Kentucky. My moments you don't just like of, rage through the streets every day. My moments of lack of nuance come when the Republican leadership pulls stunts that just seem to be just sort of antithetical. Probably, I don't even is, think, is dramatic. he doesn't even have to stunt. It's like every time Mitch McConnell speaks, I'm like, it God. just that's what kind of gets my heart right going. And my you blood have high pressure, blood pressure I, so you I really do, need to not I do that. Do. Oh, As well. your wife, I need to mm. advise you against that. Okay, got it. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to add? About Afghanistan, about Republicans? What well, no. Okay. Not particularly. <laughs> I don't think I don't think this is gonna go well if I get too much more wrong about it. Uh do we do we have a moment of hope for this episode? We're uh, both fully vaccinated. Let's let that be our moment of hope. That's a good moment of hope. Yeah. Both fully vaccinated. One point five million Kentuckians are beautiful. Adult Kentuckians are vaccinated, which is almost I mean, Kentucky's population is about 4 million, so we're getting close to half of at least one dose for adults in Kentucky, which has been awesome. So That's awesome. Go Governor Bashir and, and all the people who have been helping to get those vaccines in arms. It's been great. We love it. All right, next up, we're going to talk about national parks. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. 
This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. decided to have you on the show we talked about you have a history of telecommunications as well but then just did telecommunications we really didn't want to give people two weeks of telecommunications because it is not that interesting no offense uh well that's not fair i think there's a lot to talk about with telecommunications i was a telecommunications lawyer for about four and a half years when we lived in dc i worked at a big law firm on k street that did telecom policy and lobbying uh, and um, worked on several i guess you would call high profile mergers and I was involved in wireless telecom as well as satellite telecommunications and wireline, which is of course the plain old telephone system. But it's, I've been out of that world for a long time and it moves fast. And so trying to get caught up even in kind of what's going on in telecom today is a, is a big lift. But I think a lot of what's going on is that we're still acting under a law that's 25 years old Mm. um, in a world that's changed a lot as with regard to telecom and internet. Um, which I'm sure Pansy Politics will cover one day, but not today. So instead, we decided to talk about something you feel very strongly about. And it happened to coincide with a piece in The Atlantic that we both found really interesting. And we're going to talk about national parks. So our national park system is 85 million acres, 423 national park sites. We are in the middle of trying to check off as many national parks as we can as a family, because I gave you a scratch-off national park poster for Christmas, which has just really lit a fire under us. We are ready to, it has. to not, scratch Not just them us, off. but a lot of people have been, in the, in the pandemic, have been re, rediscovering yeah. the national parks. And re- it's, the national parks have been in the news in the last couple of years because, of course, one of Trump's premier... I guess he would call it a premiere. Would he? Uh, I think he doesn't even mention it that often. He, had, I mean, he, he should, did, but well, he doesn't. He has a mixed record with the national parks. Of course, he there's two national park sites, Barriers, and one that I can't bring to mind right now that he actually shrunk during his time. Oh, yeah, yeah, he took, yeah, yeah. And yeah. He, 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 it went from, uh, I think he shrunk it by 85% in Barriers. And so that was, that was, he had a mixed record, certainly about national parks. But one of the things that he signed into law with a lot of bipartisan support was, of course, the Great American Outdoors Act, which set aside $9 billion for national parks projects that had been sort of put on the back burner. Um, one of the things that I think we'll talk about a little bit is visitation of national parks has increased 50% Dang. since 1980, I think is the, num- is the number, but the actual funding stayed relatively flat. And so there were lots and lots and lots of projects that were maintenance. going, maintenance in particular, that was just going undone. And, you know, staffing, of course, was, was of course, limited because they weren't, weren't able to increase staffing. And, there's, and so that bill, that law now, provided a lot of funding for the national parks and also 
provided a longer term source of funding for national, local and regional kind of parks through the uh, kind of a trust fund that's funded by offshore offshore drilling. Well, so we just returned from spring break where we went to South Florida to see three national parks. We went to the Everglades, Biscayne Bay and Dry Tortugas. And it was like I thought it was such a good cross section of just the even in one state, the diversity of the national park system, because, you know, we went to the Everglades, which is huge, thousands and thousands of acres of this river of grass. Then went to Biscayne Bay, which is thousands of acres underwater. Mm -hmm. And then we traveled two and a half hours on a boat ride out to Dry Tortugas, which is small. I mean, I think Dry Tortugas also includes a lot of the water ash, acreage. Right, right. The but then there's the park area is more the than islands. The islands. Right. And then we there's like a big fort. Like it's a, it's sort of a national. It's like you know when people think of national parks, they don't think of a small island with a giant brick fort on it. But yeah. that's what it is. Fort Jefferson is built on the Dry Tortugas, on the largest island that make up the Dry Tortugas, and it is interesting to think about, you know, the theory, I guess, behind national parks in some ways is to um, appreciate nature in its untampered uh, with state. Yeah. And this is very much not that. And mm -hmm. a lot of the money that uh, goes toward the Dry Tortugas and keeping it up is in keeping the fort, which is more of a historical site. You know, it's yeah. more of a like a Fort Sumter type of thing or even... The biggest uh, brick building in both Americas. Even... I learned. Yeah. Even like Fort Zachary Taylor, which is in also in the... Key West. Uh, in Key West, you know, it's a similar type of site, but it's not a national park. It's a state park, but there's a lot less focus, I think, now on the fort part. Whereas in Dry Tortugas, I'd say it's about 50-50 of people who go there to, yeah. <laughs> to see the fort and people who go there for the the natural like habitat. The so this, yeah, there's snorkeling. But even the snorkeling the... is good because of the fort. Yeah, Because they I like structures yeah, to build, like to coral, for coral to grow on. Sure. I th So I thought it was like a really good cross-section but i mean look we're, we're going to hot springs this weekend and hot springs is both is the same thing like it's a natural place but it's also like a historical site because of the baths that were built up around the springs so it's i mean i think the national park system like the diversity not just in the landscape but the way that they are handled i mean like the smoky mountains is one of the most visited national parks because it has a highway running through it right, right. Um, and there's no fees right? and there's no fees and like and then when you get out west which i think people usually associate with the national parks. Then you get into the, like, the Yosemite, the Yellowstone, Death Valley, all the national parks in Utah, and then right. you're getting into the vistas I think people more readily recognize. But there really is just so much out there. We also looked up all the states that didn't have national parks, which was kind of a surprising sure. list. Like, Louisiana, sure. why don't you have a national park? That's surprising to me. Right. There are sort of different designations. There are national parks, per se, and then there's other national park sites. There's national recreation areas, so, for example, Kentucky has a, a national park at Mammoth Cave, which is another fairly developed yeah. site, so to speak. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. There were cave wars. Did y'all know this? They like where there was like violence surrounding the yeah. caves and who controlled them for a long time. But then we also have Land Between the Lakes, which is a national site, but it's a national recreation area. Mm -hmm. And that designation is a little bit given to sites that are more about recreation versus conservation. Um, so a lot of the stuff around the national parks has been you know, improving maintenance, improving conservation. There's a lot of push to get more science back into the national parks versus just tourism. Because that's hard. Like if you're conserving things and you want to build appreciation, but bringing humans into that is a conservation challenge every time. Right. And so that's, you know, you'll, you'll hear this said a lot that national parks are being loved to death, mm. that the increase in tourism to the sites and that naturally leads to people sort of 
using the permitted sites over using the permitted sites, but also going into the unpermitted sites and sort of, you know, mm-hmm. bushwhacking, so to speak, if that's a term we can use, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, what the push has been, and it's always kind of been pushed back on is to try to get some of these sites that are sort of seen as overused on a kind of a lottery system on a kind of reservation system where they're not just being just used and used and used and used and used, but it's not, they've never, they haven't kind of hit the the right way to do that that doesn't lead to you know pushback from you know regional these these particularly in the in the american west so to speak the um which is a problematic probably phrase mm. <laughs> in, in the first place it's a huge tourist industry you know there's yeah. so many national parks in the west you, you look at this this scratch off calendar we have and it's like utah utah, you know, utah if we utah. lived in california or utah <laughs> Uh, we'd have well, they're know, the two states with the most, right? We quad, I think that's right. I think we'd have quadruple the sites that we 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 could visit yeah. on a, in a day's drive. You know, so you know we are. It, I think at the same time that we are considering and and pushing to to see a lot of these sites, we have are having to consider the impact that you know we we as humans are having on these sites and how to how to dampen that impact. And that I think is kind of a natural lead into what this article that that was written by David Truer at the Atlantic. Which essentially, somewhat convincingly to me anyway, argues that the national park sites should be effectively turned over to the Native American tribes in the U.S. for their to administer. And, you know, the basis of his reasoning is, I, I don't think he puts it as reparations, but he spends a lot of time talking about the history of the American Indian and uh, Native American in reservations and how they've shrunk and how they were forced off the lands through various means, wars being forced to sign treaties that were not honored, being forced to turn over lands in exchange for health care or food just to survive harsh winters after they were forced off their their original lands where they were able to typically able to survive these harsh winters. So it's a really, really good article for a history of that that process, I guess, is the nicest way to put it. Well, and I think the history part is a really important piece to start with because this reminds me of an experience we had while we were on vacation we went to Dry Tortugas. It is this massive brick fort, and it was built by enslaved people and indentured servants from Ireland and Scotland in really brutal, terrible conditions. And we talked about that, and both Griffin and Amos were like, well, I feel bad now. I feel guilty being here because I know that people suffered to build it. And I think that's, you know, I think you can, you have to acknowledge that piece of almost any national park that you visit and that if you're enjoying this beautiful vista, I mean, he, he starts with this historical vignette from the Mariposa battalion who came into the, the first white men to come into the Yosemite Valley. And this beautiful quote, which I would bet I have not seen the Ken Burns national parks documentary, but I bet you money it's in there. I can hear, I can hear the narrator in his voice saying this quote and it's beautiful. And it's about how seeing it and you're looking to God. And then the next quote is about, this just horrendous quote about native people and how they should all be killed and the same guy, you know? And I think it's so, it's really hard to hold those things. And it's hard to talk with your kids about this is a, I I brought you to this beautiful place and I want you to see it and connect with it and see how beautiful it is. And also it's a place of great suffering and the history that brought us here is complicated. And to ask an 11 year old or a nine year old to hold that is hard because it's hard for me to hold all of that. And I think, you know, I was listening to Tressie McMillan Cottom on Ezra Klein's podcast, and she was saying that the promise of multiculturalism is not that everyone gets as comfortable 
as the privileged people, right? It's not that everybody rises up to this place where we don't ever have to think about this stuff again. It's that the privileged people come into the place we're all living in, which is it's uncomfortable. There are no easy answers. Conversations are hard. That's the reality, right? That you've been, that privilege so often protects us from. And it's not that we're trying to, we're not going to get to a place where it's uncomfortable or uncomplicated. And I think the national parks, and it's definitely as illustrated by this article, are a really intense manifestation of that because it is, they are places that are so beautiful and so grand and can connect you to something so much bigger. And also they are the sites of enormous pain. And I mean, really the truth is every spot on earth is a place of enormous pain in a way, right? Like, I think that that's just the reality of human existence, but it's hard to like, I didn't really know what to say to Griffin and Amos except for, yeah, I know, but we, we can't, you know, in an effort to not feel that discomfort, we cannot ignore the the painful reality of the history of this place. But I also don't think that the best way to honor that history is to like never see these places. And and that's definitely not what David Truer is arguing. He's not arguing shut them off. He's just no, arguing them and trust them to people who have a different approach and understanding of the land. And I love the part where he says like, you know, Native Americans, despite genocide, first of all, and then horrific attempts to assimilate them from like basically kidnapping their children and putting them in boarding schools and not letting them keep their language. Like they have maintained this approach to the land and the rest of us have caught up like their understanding of the land and how to interact with it is where our understanding has finally caught up to. I mean, I think that's the why we're loving the national parks to death in a way is because people there's so many more more people, so many of us, but that so many of us are coming to that understanding of the land as a way to connect and as a as a thing to behold and participate in. Although I just I unfortunately think there's a lot of consumerism still embedded in that, unfortunately. Definitely. There's a lot of consumerism involved in, in some of these sites in particular. You know, it's an Instagram site to go uh-huh. and get your picture taken and do your picture, take, take your picture as if one more picture of Arches National Park, of the famous <laughs> site of Arches National Park, your picture from your iPhone of Arches National Park is going to be Listen, I took lots of pictures of dry tortugas and I posted um, them on Instagram. No judgment. Um, so, I, it, but not to be too critical of that, but I, I think there is a ton to be done. You know, even if you disagree with his ultimate conclusion, which is that these should be turned over to their, to American Indian I'm not sure. I guess he, he uses, like a tribal I think coalition. He uses Native American, so I'll use Native American. But to the tribes, if you disagree with that, even there's a ton more that can be done in terms of education. Mm-hmm. And I think that Sarah points out a, an interesting part of that, which is, of course, that there were enslaved persons who helped to build Fort Jefferson. Roughly 20, percent I think, of the workforce was enslaved persons. That that's sort of just a kind of a a blip in the yeah, conversation. You know, a lot of the a lot of the emphasis is put on the the white leaders who had so much wisdom as to put a naval base here or to put a naval, I guess a naval base is probably right, but a fortress here to protect our naval waters instead of the peoples who built the ding dong thing. Yeah. But I think that's a lot, a lot can be done at, at a lot of the parks that were um, American Indian homelands to in, improve education about what happened. There is, I think there is some effort, you know, there are, there are some trails, there's a trail of tears monuments uh, there's one near us actually that mm-hmm. kind of marks the the trail of tears and provides education about that so I but mean, see i think, I think are... that's hard too because i think he makes a really good point in this article of like 
it can become where American Indians are like past, right? Like right. where the only orientation sure. is through the history. And I think that one of the strongest arguments in the article is that like the tribes are still here and the people are still here. And that, and like, there was a part where he talks about like the population is larger than American Muslims. And I'm not going to lie. I was surprised by that. If you'd mm. asked me what has a larger population, American Indians or American Muslims, I would have said American Muslims. And so like, just say, just emphasizing like, the administration of the parks, because it's not just, it, it wouldn't just be about emphasizing the history, but a, about emphasizing the presence and the, you know, important belonging within the nation right now and the presence of those, of those tribal nations within our country. And I just, I thought, I thought, I think that's really important too. I think the American Indian Museum in Washington, D.C. does a really good job of that, of like balancing the history with the, the presence of, tribal people now today living breathing contributing to our country and i think that's really important too definitely like i said if you agree or disagree with the ultimate outcome of the article it's definitely worth your time 100 mm-hmm. percent worth your time and i think you make some very compelling arguments that this would be a kind of a uh, opportunity to to value that history and to turn these back over to the peoples who originally lived on them right and i just think it's like it's an it's a step towards reconciliation. And I think it is, if we value the national parks, then in what bigger way could we emphasize the ways in which we value land and the power that we think those lands have? And that, you know, even he talks a lot about Teddy Roosevelt, lots. You can't talk about the national parks without talking about Teddy Roosevelt. And, you know, the conflict between this man who you know, believed in the power of nature and also was like believed in the power of colonialism and violence. Right. But I think like, how could we, you know, reconcile those things? What a better way to reconcile than we say, not only do we value these lands and we believe in the power of them, we believe in the power of these lands so much that we believe that they could be an instrumental part in real reconciliation, which our country is so desperate for. Like they could hold such a special place like not just the history of violence and genocide and and death, but could hold this place in the history of reconciliation where we say the lands now belong back to the tribal people. They administer them. We, we There is like trust given back, lands given back. I just think, I think that could be so healing and like really beautiful. Right. And his argument, of course, is not that these, like Sarah mentioned, not that these would be closed. No. In fact, they would remain open to... I think he even says to the Instagram influencer, to the, <laughs> to, the to whoever, to, but it would simply be administered by the American Indians and the tribes, which who have a history of administering lands mm-hmm. and ha- having their own governments, uh, you know, governments which have been recently recognized by the re- recognized by mm-hmm. the Supreme Court, history of rights, and so the idea is not that these would be closed closed off to other peoples, simply that the the administration of them would be turned over, and of course that would still require funding because these things aren't. They don't pay for themselves. Despite being loved to death, they don't yet pay for themselves and probably never will. So they, they will require funding and they will probably require you know, future conservation efforts and efforts to, to limit the number of people who are, who are loving them to death, so to speak. Uh, so it's really, again, worth your time to, to consider and read. And I think it's... And go visit your local national park. Yeah. Unless you're one of those sad states who doesn't have one and you have to go somewhere else. Almost nobody is outside of a day's drive, that, you know, at least in the continental United States. There's a, there's a national park within your reach. Yeah. For sure. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. 
I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Okay, Nicholas, what's on your mind outside politics? So we spent about a day and a half in the car driving to and from Key West, Florida in the last week. And we decided that there would be no better entertainment than to listen to Jimmy Buffett's One songs and only. the entire way there. We, we heard a lot. a lot of It's Five O'Clock Somewhere. Yeah, which is we not heard. a Jimmy Buffett song. 
Well, no, right. It's an Alan Jackson song. It was written by somebody else, but he's in it and it's become, it's kind of become a signature. Interestingly enough, they sell a lot of. Our favorite Jimmy Buffett song is Boat Drinks. It is. Boat Drinks is a, is a. Unappreciated, underappreciated. It's a family favorite. Ever, we started going to Fripp Island and we would play Boat Drinks or I would play Boat Drinks for you originally. Yeah. And you thought it was sort of obnoxious. And but now it's grown on me. You've come around to Come it. around. But, but really, I think what we thought about and kind of what, as I was driving and thinking about was just what a. Kind of a salesman and a BS artist. Well, that, what I said, Jimmy is, Buffett truly is. Now, mind now, you, what I said halfway through there is, I said he is a siren. He is like tr- the truest siren song in the like mythical sense of the word. Like he sings these songs, you start thinking, yeah, like I'm the I'm the palest human on planet Earth. Like I can't live Jimmy Buffett's life, but I'm like, yeah, I should do this. I should like definitely do my podcast from Key West. This is the mm. life I want to live. Like. Right. It sounds amazing. I want to drink boat drinks and live in Margaritaville. And yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I would say two things about that. One is that I don't think Margaritaville is a particularly hopeful song. Uh, <laughs> he's wasting away again there. But even that, but, he just sounds so fun. Right. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the life you want to live. And and to, to say nothing of Jimmy Buffett has lived much more of a life than just as a musician, although he's become fabulously wealthy. Well, yeah, we looked it up. He's worth $550 million. He's um, like one of the wealthiest celebrities out there. But now you hear him sing these songs about, you know, particularly, I think we were talking about Five O'Clock Summer, which is not his song, but it talks about, you know, the boss is on my rear and and what a drag it is. And I'm just going to go have a long lunch. But he has other songs that mention that. And drink, you know, day drink. And uh, which neither of us do, which right, is also another right, funny which part of this. He probably, and he, but he doesn't have a boss that's on his behind. He, you know, he, like I said, well, I said that. I said he's well, a but, siren. Let's give it up and right. live this life. And he was like, you were like, he doesn't live that life, Sarah. He has like Broadway musicals and restaurants. Right, he tours all the time. He tours. Uh, he uh, has uh, a. We did look it up though. He does live on water, and he does take part of the year to be on his boat. That's true. That's true. I mean, he. I'm not trying to. He's a real sailor. I mean, he really did. He is, and he's an excellent songwriter. He is, no doubt. No takeaway from him, but he also. You just you couldn't just give it all up and go with living Cuba. Particularly, you couldn't live, give it's it up and go live in Cuba. We West. looked it up on it's, Zillow, it ain't man. Cheap to live there for one. That's thing, my favorite hobby when we travel is to open up the Zillow. I think my favorite thing about Key West is that you kind of thought it would be like six. I did six thatched roof huts on a, <laughs> on, a, on a beach, <laughs> and it's obviously not that. It's it a is. very developed. I really thought island. it was I mean, going to be so much like primitive. smaller, <laughs> not primitive, <laughs> but I thought it would be like a couple city blocks. It is not. No, it's not. It is like twenty nine thousand people. Right. It's not. It's not a huge. Place, it has a but public. It's bigger than. It's bigger than. Yeah. I yeah. did. That's not what I expected. It has a Kmart too. <laughs> it does. Still which has is a Kmart, weird. which was one of the more depressing experiences <laughs> I had while on the island because this Kmart. I mean, it looked like somebody had bought a Kmart and just set up like a, kind of like a flea market in it. It was just. I mean, not not that bad, but it was very. It's not well stocked. I mean, I did uh, love. I don't want. Let me be clear. I loved Key West. I oh no, I don't, I'm not dragging Key West, but the Kmart in Key West was sad. Yeah, um, I think that's just the state of Kmart right now. And there being no Walmart on Key West, I think it stays open because you need a general store, so to well, speak. Well, I mean, we saw. And, and the thing about Jimmy Buffett too is not this that his songs are like convincing, but they're also earworms to the like tenth degree. Mm-hmm. They are stuck in your head. We were days back home still singing Jimmy Buffett. Well, we were also singing Kokomo a lot. Yes, because, because we did a lip sync video to Kokomo, which I'll put the link to in the show notes. I'm very proud. So, because Dax Shepard and Kristen Bell a few years ago went to Africa and they filmed a lip sync video to Toto's Africa, which I loved. And the second I saw it, I was like, oh, we're going to do that. And so we did Kokomo 
And our 11 year old was less than thrilled. Yeah. He's, he's a very, he's turning very much into a tween and he has, he decided that we were trying to embarrass him, forcing him to do things. It was funny. He would come around and yeah, like, every once in a while. these flashes, he would say, Oh, I'll do that. And so he's in the video and he's even smiling. <laughs> But then, you know, you're the real star, though, when we were the real star of the video, you leaned all the way in, which you would not have done 15 years ago. No, I would have been Griffin 15 years ago. Yes. I would have been. Even though you were not 11, 15 years ago. An overgrown man child complaining about his wife having making him. This is a good intro to how we should close out about how awesome I am, because like, look how much it's my influence. Yeah, you did turn it around and make it about that, didn't you? Yeah. uh huh. Yeah. Because your your new embrace of enthusiasm is from me. Yes. I'm, well, I'm not, I'm not going to say that it's not. Well, you, do you think, do you think my face suggests that I'm skeptical of this? No, okay. no, no. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I don't know about new embrace of enthusiasm, but just like, I think some of it's just uh recognition that I can fight this all I want, <laughs> but ultimately, ultimately it's going to probably gonna happen. happen. So I'm might, and like, I tell our kids, we can smile for the camera now <laughs> or we can smile at the camera in 15 minutes because we got to get the picture. <laughs> So just smile for the camera. <laughs> are you in claim, are you in, are you insinuating that I'm some sort of bulldozer? No, not a bulldozer, but you, you know, you get your mind set on something. And it's not an unreasonable request, really. I mean, it was fun and I think the end product is a lot of fun. It's so good. And I don't regret it. But I mean, you just you have to kind of realize like, okay, she wants to do this. She's really got her mind set on it. She's really committed a lot of mental energy to it. She's mm-hmm. not going to let this go. Just Go with the flow and try to get over because all of it is all it really is is about embarrassment, right? And feeling yeah. like you're being silly. And at the end of the day, like who cares? Who cares? Right. Well, I will say that, you know, look, you've been a bulldozer from kind of I'm glad I gave up on you being like, no, really, you should start a podcast. No, for real, you should try to start a podcast. No, really, like podcast is the future. You need to start a podcast. Yeah. I mean, that's like the that's like my one great contribution to it society. Is, it is it'll be it'll go down in history. It'll be my Wikipedia page. My whole Wikipedia page. <laughs> Will be one time mentioned to his wife that she should start a podcast, <laughs> and, and and you know, uh, born you know, X Y Z died whenever. I love you, Nicholas. On you're the best decision I've ever made. Well, ditto. Thanks for joining us, everybody, for this special episode of Pantsuit Politics. Beth and I will be back together. On Tuesday, I'm counting the seconds. I miss her so much. Two weeks is a long time not to be like, obviously we've talked, but I miss the podcast. So we'll be back together on Tuesday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Sherry Blem. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps. Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. David McWilliams. Jared Minson. Emily Neasley. Danny Osmond. The Pettins! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Karen True. Amy Whited. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless. Paula Bremer. And Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and follow us on Instagram at pantsuitpolitics.